Well, first off, I want to say welcome to a few RTS students who have found their way in here. This is the, the hybrid week. This is the marathon week for a lot of distance MDiv students, and we're very glad to have you here worshiping with us today. I also want to say thanks to Robert, who very capably filled in for me last week while I was with our team down in Cuba. You're going to hear more about Cuba in my sermon and in coming weeks, but in short, I just want to tell you it was one of the most incredible short-term uh, missions opportunities that, that I've ever been a part of. Um, and I'm hopeful that many of you are going to be able to participate in future trips through OGC. 51-minute flight down to Havana from Orlando. There's very little reason not to go. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. I want to let you know that we are hitting pause um, for two weeks in January. And Lord willing, I hope this is something that we continue to do every January as we start the new year. We are going to have a series called As in Heaven. Every two weeks in the beginning of every year. And so the thinking is most church, most churches, or many churches, will hit pause for one week to talk about the Imago Dei. The fact that we are made in the image of God. And because of that, Christianity has a higher view of humanity than every other worldview. And so we speak out on issues of life and racism and human rights uh, sex trafficking. There's so many implications to being made in the image of God. So what we want to do, we want to do at least that. In fact, next week we'll be on the Imago Day, but we want to put it under an umbrella as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the Imago Day issue is really a, a part of a larger issue of God's kingdom coming to earth. And so that's really what, where we're going to start. And again, Lord willing, every Two weeks, every January, we will start our year by reorienting our hearts around this idea that God's will could and will be done here in Orlando as it is in heaven. All right, so when we were in Cuba, we had the opportunity to partner with an amazing organization called Filter of Hope. So many of you know this, but the water in Cuba is all, all but undrinkable. I mean, it, it wouldn't meet any of our American standards for drinking water. And in fact, many of the Cubans, they're sick, and especially the kids, they grow up without their, the ability to, to produce the nourishment that the bo your body is designed to produce because the water is doing so many bad things with their stomach. So we go in and we partner with the local church, and the local church identifies homes in their communities, and we go in their homes... We install a $40 water filter, which is two months of their wages. I mean, something they could never be able to afford. And then we get to tell them why we're here. You know, why we as these wealthy Americans would spend time to come down to Cuba and install water filters. And of course, it has everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was just amazing to see what God would do. We'd walk into homes with these local churches and one woman was dying of cancer and in another house, the grandmother had just died. And we would be asked questions like, why is there death? And we would then have the opportunity to explain and hand them a Bible and explain our hope that death is not the final word. And by God's grace, we saw 56 people respond, respond to the gospel and get connected to a local church. We saw whole households respond to Jesus and connect to the church. It, it really was truly incredible and sad that their government has so restricted their access to not only clean water, but ultimately the living water. And so we, uh, we went to a few communities uh, and we got to see their longing for certain things that they don't even, questions they don't even know how to answer. 
and we went to one community in particular, the English translation is the wells. And I really don't have words to adequately explain to you how poor this community is. You will see pictures in the, in the future, but it's beyond anything that I could have imagined. And so we're in this community, and I learned that this community was founded by some escaped slaves in the 1800s, but now it's become kind of a haven for people uh, seeking employment from the other side of the island. They can, this, this community allows them to maybe get close enough to Havana. They couldn't afford to live in Havana, but close enough to where maybe they could have access to the jobs in Havana. And what I thought was really interesting is it was known as the worst place in Cuba for the latter half of the 20th century. It was so dangerous and so bad that from 1979 to 2000, the Cuban police would not even go into this town. But something changed so dramatically that now almost everybody in that community, even though they are shockingly poor, they have what they need to eat. They have, they have roofs over their heads and things like addiction rates are plummeting in this community. And everyone, including the communist government, agrees there is one reason for this change. A change so radical that we now can just walk around in that community and go into people's homes. I would take my children into that community. And that one thing is one church. One man was converted. He planted a church. And that church was so serious about loving and investing in their community that it radically changed everything from food to addiction and housing. Everyone began to be served and helped. And as I talked with this pastor, I realized that he had an, unbelievable, an unbelievably clear perspective on what it is that we are supposed to long for during our short time on this earth. And that thing that we are supposed to long for is perfectly summarized in the way Jesus tells us to pray in the first two verses of the Lord's Prayer. So what I want to do, I want to look at these first two verses of how Jesus told us that we are to pray. And I want to extrapolate from that, what is it that we should be longing for most during our very short time here on this earth? And we're specifically going to see that we should long for two things. We should long for the name of the Lord to be hallowed and we should long for his kingdom to come. So very simple. First, that his name would be hallowed. Verse nine of Matthew chapter six. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we have to remember in the Lord's prayer, Jesus isn't giving us a script to chant. He isn't giving us a a magic spell that we can cast. He's giving us categories to understand how it is that we should pray. It's more of a, a scaffolding than it is a final product. And then we, understanding these categories, then build those out. And the first category that we're given here in, in this verse is that we should pray, we should long for God's name to be hallowed. Now, right away, there is a lot that makes this verse fairly inaccessible to 21st century Americans. <laughs> so first off is just this word hallowed. You know, th- this, this word has lost popularity in the modern English language and, and really has lost use and we don't even know what it means anymore. I bet if I were to go out on the streets of Orlando and poll people on what does this word hallowed mean, I would get more Harry Potter answers than I would Bible answers. But this verse means Holy. Holy. God's name should be holy and revered and lifted up for what it is. 
So that's the, the first challenge to understanding what is going on here. But the second problem is that not only that we're unfamiliar with the word, we're kind of unfamiliar with the concept of, of a name and how much goes into a name because in almost every culture that has ever existed and especially in Jesus's culture, your name is inseparably linked to the person and the character behind the name. So I was thinking about how we name our kids today and, and most of us, if we're honest, maybe we, we pick it from our, you know, somewhere in our family lineage, but really we pick it because we like the way that it sounds. <laughs> or maybe we go to a list of popular names and, and we cho- choose a name because it's popular. When I did a little research this week, when my parents were growing up, Jim was one of the most popular names in the United States. Now it doesn't break the top 3,000. So, so you don't see a lot of baby Jims running around anymore. So that, that's how we choose our names. And if, if, I bet if we looked at our pets, most of our pets' names would have more significance than our children's names because we think through how to name a pet in a different kind of way. But I don't think we've lost this concept completely. We still have phrases in our culture like, he has a good name in this town. And I am tremendously blessed to have a father and a father-in-law who have good names in their respective towns of Orlando and New Albany, Mississippi. And if anybody were to go and attack or malign their names and all the dignity and honor that is due them for almost seven decades of making right decisions and continually putting the needs of others above themselves, I would be irate. I would, I, I couldn't, I would have to stand up and say something or do something. I would not stand for that. And let, let's take that emotion and multiply it by, say, 10 million. And I think we're getting somewhere close to what Jesus is talking about here. God's name should be hallowed. It's important because of the way that it's connected to him. You know, God doesn't pick names for himself based on their popularity or how they sound. I mean, God, in picking names, he's communicating something very significant to us about his character. He chooses names like Elohim, which acknowledge that God is the creator of everything. Or Adonai, which acknowledge that he's not only the creator, he's the Lord of everything. Or, you know, then there's always I am. I mean, I don't even know what all is included when God is saying what he's wanting to communicate about his character when he says, my name is I am. Augustine wrote on this and talking about this name, I am, he said, it's too much to handle. He said, I see the depths, but I do not yet see the bottom. It's important for us to connect the name of God with the character of God, because the more we understand about the names that he gives us, the more we understand about God. And in a real way, his name is supposed to affect our heart. It's supposed to call us and draw us and change us. C.S. Lewis has this great uh, this great piece in the Chronicles of Narnia where, where he takes this idea and he applies it to Aslan and two of the children. He writes this, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. When we understand the connection between a name, well, not just any name, in this case, the names of God and who he is, it should change us. And as we're changed, 
we should then have this deep desire that his name will be hallowed in our midst, that it would be honored and revered and lifted up in every single thing that we do. But there is something here that is easily missed because I, I, I think everybody would agree that the way that Jesus is talking, as he's saying these words, you should revere God's name. You should lift up God's name. You should make sure it's seen as holy. He was doing it in a way that many would have regarded as unholy and dishonoring because he's referring to God in these very familiar terms, our father. I mean, this word father, it is affectionate. Um, It is informal. I wouldn't go far as to apply it to daddy because it's more mature uh, than, than the way we would use the English word daddy, but it communicates the highest level of intimacy and informality. And, and it's not, you can't just, you didn't just address God in this way, in that culture. I mean, in that culture, in fact, there was so much reverence for God that not only would they not address him, they wouldn't address him in an informal title, they wouldn't address him in terms of a name at all. They had taken all the names of God out of their prayers, out of their services, because God was holy, and you just, you don't do this. And here is Jesus using maybe the most intimate, familiar way of addressing another person. They're hearing this, and they're thinking God is holy. God is righteous. He is immeasurably more righteous than any of us are. God is royal. You don't just come in and call him Father. And I think it would be easy maybe for people to think, well, maybe we shouldn't do it, but maybe Jesus could do it. Jesus can address God this way, but we should never do it. But the problem is that this is the way he's instructing us to pray. (laughs) So it's not just for Jesus, it's for us. And then we see other places, this affirmed in John 1. John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then we see Paul carrying this, the same the same mantra, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying what? Abba, Father. So how is this okay? How is it okay to call God Father in this familiar, intimate kind of way? It is only okay under one circumstance. If you are really his children. If you are his child, you can call him father. And, and there, you, know, you hear people say things today like, well, really, we're all God's children. We're all God's children. And yes, in, in the sense that he created us all, we are. But if, if, you're, if you're talking about addressing him in this way as father, no. This is only for his children. I mean, we, we would never go to somebody who we had wronged or offended or abused and just act like everything's happy-go-lucky, nothing wrong. There's got to be some process of redemption to be able to have that kind of relationship restored in a way that we can communicate the way that Jesus is telling us we should communicate to God our Father. I think the Pharisees would have rightfully sensed there is a distance here. There is, do you think about any distance between somebody we've wronged and us? There is a chasm 
a cosmic chasm between the God of the universe and we who have rebelled against him. And so the only way that we can address him as father is if there is some sort of path of redemption and then eventually adoption. And that's what God has given us in Jesus Christ. He's given us a path to become true sons and daughters because the only true son, Jesus Christ, has come down here and he has switched places with us. He has taken on the relationship to God as an enemy and taken on the punishment due on the cross so that we can now enjoy the status as true, loved, cherished child. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've ever looked at this and, and thought, you know, it's funny we, all, we end all of our prayers, how? In Jesus' name. It's like the, the main thing that we do in every prayer is absent in the main passage that teaches us how to pray. That, that seems kind of weird. Until we realize that it's assumed in there because the only way we can say our Father is when we do it in Jesus' name because only in Jesus Christ are we true children. If we believe in Jesus we have God. If we don't, we will never be able to address him as father. And this great doctrine is what we call the doctrine of adoption. G.I. Packer in Knowing God, he, he says justification is the fundamental blessing of God, but adoption is the highest blessing of God. So in Jesus Christ, we're adopted in as true, cherished, loved, full sons and daughters of God. And I love, every time I get a chance to be around families with adopted children, I love the picture that I see of our spiritual status. And, and sometimes you have, you have children with both biological and adopted children, and sometimes you can even tell which are which because their skin color is different. But never do you see the parents in any way treating them differently. The adopted children are just as much true members of their family and children that they love as their biological children. And those adopted children have every bit of access that the biological children have to their parents. And it's a beautiful picture of who we are when we are adopted in Jesus Christ. We get all the access of true loved children. I told you this last year, um, but after having slept on the same mattress, the same queen mattress, our entire marriage, we upgraded to a king. And, and my thinking was that that we get spread out a little bit. <laughs> I didn't realize that it just ensured that every morning I would open my eyes and there would be a child in between us drooling on my, on my pillows. But I would look at that child and I would smile because that child has that kind of access to us. However, if I were to wake up one morning and open my eyes and see you in between Angela and me, that would be a different scenario. You don't have that kind of access to me because you're not my children. And in the same way, if we don't know and believe in Jesus Christ, we do not have access to God as Father. But if we do know and believe in Jesus Christ, then we have access to God, our Father, as true, loved, cherished, beloved children. And our Father in heaven is more loving and gracious and merciful and courageous and everything good we can imagine than any earthly father in this world. And when we know that and when we see that and when we experience that, it should make us want his name to be hallowed in everything we do, in every part of this society. 
So what does this look like? I think certainly it starts with us. You know, if we can't have any kind of expectation that God's name is going to be hallowed through other people and in other places if it's not first happening in our own lives. So I think back to this church in the wells outside of Havana in Cuba. And I see a people who are worshiping with all their heart. You know, they're not worshiping and hiding in any way. And actually, their church building is in the center of the city, and it's kind of like an open-air environment almost. And so everybody, everybody in town sees them worshiping. They know, who's, they know who has taken on the label of Christian in that community. And then they go out, and they love, and they invest in their community in a significant way. And people with recoveries, people with addictions recover, people who need food, eat, and people in dire need have shelter. So is that true of us? Are we, is it true through our worship? Are we God-centered in our worship? Or are we, are we me-centered? Are we consumer-driven? Are we thinking about more about our preferences? Charles Spurgeon famously said, God is not a product to be enjoyed. He is the creator to be worshiped. So are we marked as worshipers of Jesus Christ? And is it obvious to those around us. And then secondly, does our faith have legs? I mean, does our faith cause us to go out and want to help those who don't, don't have all the blessings that we have? Does it cause us to want to put their good and their, their needs above ours? And do, does it make us okay in a lot of places, and especially church and home, when our preferences aren't all met? Because those are marks of people whose supreme value is that God's name would be hallowed. I don't think you can overstate the impact that a church can have when God's hallowed name is the supreme aim. I mean, we've seen it in the wells. A church that's serious about God's name being hallowed can literally change a city. And as that happens, a second thing is happening. His kingdom is coming. This is verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the goal is that God's love and his justice and his mercy, it would be manifested here on earth in the same way that it's currently manifested in heaven. Now, I can remember the first time that I heard that heaven is a bus stop. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that phrase. I first heard it from an old professor of mine, Richard Pratt. I I grew up thinking heaven is the final destination. When we die and everything's over, heaven is where we'll be. But that's not what the Bible teaches. This is the final destination. Heaven coming here. Everything here being made new. Without sin, without pain, without injustice, and with our Father, with whom we can communicate, commune, and communicate and enjoy for eternity. That's the end goal. And we get to be a real part of that coming here, of that process happening. I think all Christians would agree on that. But how that happens, how we're a part of God's kingdom coming, it has caused some tensions in the evangelical world and even in the reformed world. And so you, like in any group of people, you get more than... 10 people together, you're going to have a left wing and a right wing, all right? That's just a matter of a human humanity. You have a left wing and a right wing, and you have that in the local church as well, in, in the evangelical church. And there's a phrase 
that I have noticed on both sides. They both use the same phrase to say, you've gone too far. You've gone too far in the way that you're interpreting the kingdom come. You have now gotten to an issue that is outside of the purview of the church or that is just out of bounds. And that phrase that I hear both the left and the right say is this. Now you're just getting political. Now you're just getting political. We've gone too far. And so here's practically how it plays out. You have, let's say the left wing looks at the right wing and say, you've gotten too political in your support of the Republican Party. The the president is not Christian. He is not living a Christian life. And so your public support of the Republican Party alienates the people we're trying to reach. That's how that plays out going from left to right. From right to left, they would say, you have gotten too political in your desire to see social justice and racial reconciliation formed in the church. That's, that's too political. And in fact, that's probably more of a Trojan, Trojan horse for left-wing political views to come into the church. And I think there is merit to both of those arguments, okay? But this phrase, you're just, you're now getting political, it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus is teaching here, okay? It betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what a kingdom is and how it comes about and how it's displayed. Because in Jesus' day, a kingdom was marked by statues of the king. So to to claim his territory, he would have put statues around certainly the capital city, but all over the kingdom. You would have known what kingdom you're in based on the statues and maybe the murals. I mean, certainly in Havana, it was clear who's king there. It's the Castro brothers. Their statues and their murals. And some of you have lived long enough to see, uh, uh, say, a, tal- a totalitarian regime uh, fall. And what's the first thing that the people do when they run out into the streets? They tear down the statues because they know that, that statue claims there's a king that I don't agree with and in fact who isn't king anymore and we need to tear that down and what Jesus is saying in this passage is that we are those statues we are statues because we're being made we're made in his image being conformed into his image we are statues that exist to proclaim the honor and glory of God and the hallowing of his name and when we do this we become more acutely aware of all the ways that this world is not honoring, not hallowing the name of God. And so acutely aware of all the ways the kingdom has yet to come. It causes us to want to do a lot. And if this is true, then no issue is too political, all right? We are representing the king, so we have to speak into all these issues. So we should care who's in charge of a country. We should care what laws are, are passed. We should care about people who are oppressed because of the color of their skin and systems that, that in, encourage and perpetuate that kind of oppression. We should care. We don't, as Christians, get to punt on any issue because we represent the true king. We have to do the heavy 